Welcome today to what promises to be a lively, entertaining, and challenging discussion on the related issues of diversity, culture, and inclusiveness as they apply to living, working, and playing in Toronto. It's a lunch that I have been looking forward to for some time. With the release of the census data in 1991 and 96, it became clear that by the year 2000, the complexion of Toronto was going to change. The visible minority community would no longer be the minority. Our many faces and cultures should enable Toronto to relate to diversity beyond our borders, and it should result in us being one of the leading cosmopolitan centers of the world. And while it's been more than a decade since these changes occurred, it's time we asked how we've done as a city in adapting to this change, and what does the future hold? Toronto, because of its diversity, should be the destination of choice for investment and industry from around the globe. But have our many backgrounds given rise to racism and discrimination in both the workplace and social settings? Diversity and inclusiveness been adopted at all levels of our workplace, our governments, and in our social interactions, or are we guilty of paying them lip service without doing the work to affect real change? Well, who better to chair a panel discussion on these important issues than Matt Galloway, host of Metro Morning, the GTA's top-rated morning radio program. Matt sees and meets with, diverse, with the diversity that is Toronto every day. He explores the issues with those who are experiencing them firsthand, and he never shies away from dealing with controversial subjects. His radio program introduces us to voices and stories, music, ideas, and perspectives that would otherwise elude us. He enriches my day, as I know he does yours. Matt was born in Kimberley, Ontario. He's a graduate of the York University and has held a number of on-air radio positions with the CBC in the last 10 years, including their Here and Now program. He anchored the radio coverage from both Beijing and the 2010 Winter Olympics, as he will do again from London this summer. In addition to these radio commitments, he is on the boards of the Toronto Arts Council and the Stop Community Food Centre. Matt has used the skill and sensibility with which he programs his radio program to assemble today's panel. And they are Zabine Herji, Chief Human, of Human Resources for the Royal Bank, who also has global responsibility for brand communications and corporate citizenship. Cameron Bailey, the Artistic Director of the Toronto International Film Festival. Cameron is also a well-known author and journalist and a member of the Toronto Tourism Board. Uh, Deputy Chief Solly from the Toronto Police Service, who's known as a champion for change and for transforming the culture and the face of policing in Toronto. And Fiona McFarlane, a lawyer, as well as a managing partner of Ernst & Young, where she serves as the Chief Inclusiveness Officer. Matt, you brought together a group, uh, a diverse group, rich in perspective, broad in experience for this most important discussion. Matt, the Canadian Club podium, Canada's podium of record is yours. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Thank you very much. Our esteemed panel, ladies and gentlemen. 
Um, it's uh, a great pleasure to be able to have this conversation in a room like this. This is the sort of discussion that we have in our program every single morning. Um, the difference is that uh, we do it uh, with about three or four people watching us on the other side of a glass. And to have a room full of people here uh, and a panel of leaders in this city who are very busy breaking ground uh, in this world on a daily basis is a real pleasure. So thank you for welcoming us here. And hopefully we'll be able to play around with an idea that is essential to life in this city. Jamie talked about the diversity that I see on a daily basis. If you walk the streets of Toronto, you will see that diversity. If you ride the subway, if you're on the streetcar, if you go to dinner, you will see that diversity here. How do we seize on it? How do we make sure that we are doing the best possible uh, thing to try and turn that into um, something that's embedded in our civic institutions, in our business world, in our cultural organizations and beyond. That's what we'll be talking about today. Um, on your table, you have a uh, Q&A card. We'll be talking for about 20, 25 minutes, and then we'd be happy to take your questions as well. So uh, fill them out, and um, they will be presented to us, and you can ask these great people some interesting questions. I wanted to start uh, just by talking about that word diversity. We as the most multicultural city on the planet, talk a good game about diversity. We say we are the most diverse city in the country, on the planet. Um, how we actually turn that into action is something of great debate. And so, in the work that you do, what does diversity mean in this city in 2012? And I thought we'd start with Cameron. He's right next to me. He's the head of the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, and somebody who, as I say, in the cultural world and beyond has been a real leader in this. Thank you, Matt, for starting with me. It's <laughs> <laughs> the danger of sitting Yeah. Um, I mean, I, my perspective is that we have to see diversity as a word of convenience. Uh, when I first landed in this country in 1971, the word was multiculturalism, and that meant something very specific and for quite a long time, and had a particular history to it. That word seemed to serve its time. For a brief moment, I think in the 90s, uh, there was a word anti-racism that was floating around that was very important, um, and then that was seen as too limiting. And then diversity is the word we have right now, but it won't be the word that we have forever. So I think that's the first thing. It's a, it's a convenient word for now, but we shouldn't get too, too attached to it. Um, in terms of the work that I do, uh, because the Toronto International Film Festival is the largest public film festival in the world and one of the major public cultural events in the city, for me, it's all about audience and audiences and how we connect with different audiences through the festival. Um, and the way that we do that is through our programming. So uh, I've been with the festival for many years. Um, in the mid-90s, I started a program called Planet Africa, which was a program of films from the African continent, but together with films from the African diaspora, whether that was in Canada, the US, Europe, Latin America, wherever you might find African filmmakers, working, and that developed an audience that actually was then forced to watch those kinds of films together and see how a film from Senegal might speak to a film from Brooklyn, might speak to a film from Paris. And actually people started to have those conversations for that reason. Um, so for me that was actually Diversity 1.0. I think for me 2.0 came when I began to enter South Asia because this is not my own cultural background. I knew the African diaspora culture fairly well, having grown up within it. Um, but when I came back to the festival in the mid-2000s, um, I was handed uh, responsibility for selecting the films from South Asia, which is a massive territory. Obviously, many of you will know that India produces more films every year than any other country in the world. Um, it was fairly new to me. I had a sort of just glancing knowledge of those films, but I, I decided that if I was going to do it, I had to jump full in. 
And I began with um, Amitabh Bachchan and Shah Rukh Khan and Karan Johar. Those will be familiar names to some of you. Some of the biggest stars on the planet, really. And there was a film called Kabi Alvada Nakena, uh, which I was able to bring to the festival in, uh, I think it was 2005. Um, and what was significant about that was not just bringing the film to the festival and bringing the stars to the festival, but doing it in a certain way. And for me, that meant really cranking up the volume and putting that film in Roy Thompson Hall. We'd never had a Bollywood film in Roy Thompson Hall before um, of this kind. Um, and we had had that year, the night before, Brad Pitt on the red carpet in Roy Thompson Hall. Massive fan, fan pandemonium, the usual craziness you get with Brad Pitt. The next day, we had Amitabh Bachchan and Shah Rukh Khan and Karan Johar, um, and it was bigger. It was more spectacular. The, you know, people were lining up from morning, the aunties were in their best saris, and it was just an incredible, incredible event. And the security people weren't ready for it because they thought Brad Pitt was the biggest star we had. And so they learned something about this city and about the audience that can be uh, drawn on for a film like that. And so after that, it became a matter of going beyond that. You can start big, but you have to go beyond that and go deeper. And we've since done that with many different films, not just the big Bollywood movie star films, but films from different communities, different regions uh, of India and, and throughout the South Asian um, uh, subcontinent, and developing audiences. And that's, what we that's how we've interpreted that. Zabin? Um, and I want to give credit to Zabine because this word that we're using, diversity 2.0, is your phrase that I've appropriated. I was going to say stolen, but that's strong. Uh, but have taken and turned into uh, a series on our program, but also just in, in regular conversation, something that I talk about a lot. Um, in the work that you do at, at uh, Canada's biggest bank, what is it um, that, that speaks to that idea of diversity, in particular diversity 2.0? Thank you. Um, I know I need to get to know you better, so that uh, next time Amitabh Bachchan and Shah Rukh Khan are here, I'll be invited to the event. <laughs> I keep a list. <laughs> um, in terms of the work at, at the bank, at, at RBC, our framing is really from diversity to inclusion, maybe picking up a little bit on your comment around the word and how that evolves. Um, and really, you know, what we talk about is having diversity is interesting. Doing something with it is powerful. So let me just expand a little bit on, on that thought. And, and diversity is really a state of being, whereas inclusion is, and it's, it's, it's more active. It's about bringing people into the conversation. It's about feeling included. And without inclusion, diversity really is a static uh, concept. So our focus has very much been on a workforce that's already very diverse. About 30% of our employees are visible minorities. 10 years ago, that was 17%. 30 years ago, that was 7%. So the storyline here is in terms of our recruiting and our hiring, it actually happens naturally. We have the right practices in place. And so now that we have the diverse workforce, what are we doing to really build a culture that's inclusive, a culture where every employee can achieve their full potential. And, and it's very much about the business case. Speaking as a business person here, it's, it's a compelling business case. We have this human capital in our organization, and shame on us if we don't take the actions to really bring out the best in everybody. Because guess what? When you bring out the best, the employees win, and the company wins. It goes to our bottom line. 
And certainly from a client point of view, we know that the Toronto you talk about is our client base. So the ability to really be able to leverage the diversity in our company to better understand some of the cultural nuances, some of the unique needs that our clients have, um, is something that we're able to do. And that's what inclusion is really about. It's about taking that diversity and turning it into something very powerful. Which leads nicely to Fiona, whose title is actually not the Chief Diversity Officer, but the Chief Inclusiveness Officer for Ernst & Young. What does that mean? Well, to be, to be honest, it's just because I wanted to be called an officer, so. <laughs> you want to be but, a police officer? Sure. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Um, I'm going to build on um, what uh, Zabine and, uh, and Cameron talked about, and that is, for me, diversity is, is about potential. Um, what we at Ernst & Young sell uh, is talent, and so we need talent, and that's what we sell. And I'm going to tell a little story, and you may not expect that from an accounting firm, but uh, for, for me, if I look at the potential that is Canada, and the reason that, that I picked Canada as, a, as, a, as my home, uh, as an immigrant, is, um, is the incredible potential we have to lead in the world. And uh, the values and the, the raw materials, the culture, everything that's here is just ripe for the picking, uh, but we're not realizing it. We're not, um, we're not really leading in the world as, when it comes to inclusion. And I'll tell you a little story about the, that for me is the, the dream um, that I have for Canada. And I said it sounds a bit pompous, but, uh, um, I was at an Ernst & Young event, a minority leadership event in the U.S., and they had a, um, a fellow from the Cirque du Soleil um, who was the general manager of the permanent installations. And he was talking about leading um, a diverse team. And he, he said, I have um, 3,000 employees from the, who work in the uh, permanent installations. They speak 52 languages. And then I thought about it, and I thought, and they range from fire eaters, to physiotherapists, to contortionists, to makeup artists, to lawyers even. Um, and I thought, just imagine what they've done with that. They've taken that incredible diversity, and instead of trying to overcome it, they've leveraged it, and they have innovated, and they've created something that resonates from Beijing to Bogota, and it's Canadian, and it's wildly successful financially, and I think, that's what we could be. We could be the place where the world does business. You know, if Switzerland can do banking, like for goodness sake, we should be able to do, to do that. And so that to me is, it's, there's this unrealized potential. Uh, we are the only major country where multiculturalism is a success, and we need to leverage that as our competitive advantage. Peter, you have um, a very difficult job, and it's not to take away from, from what the other speakers have said, in that Police service and the Toronto Police Service is the gatekeeper for a lot of people in terms of uh, who they see uh, on a daily basis, how they feel protected, how they feel safe. We've been talking about this over the last couple of days in our city, and it's incumbent that people see themselves in your force. How deeply does diversity need to run through an organization like the Toronto Police Service? Uh Matt, first of all, I, you know, the, the other, being at the last in the line, you don't get to use all the fancy terms being used. Let me just say, let me say ditto. And, and while they're all very aspirational terms, to start answering your question, I want to go back to a very legalistic approach, which sort of takes us back a couple of decades. Police Services Act is over 20 years old. When you read the introduction, the overarching theme behind it is that the police services of Ontario have to be sensitive to 
the pluralistic society. Sensitive is one of those sort of pitiful, paternalistic kind of terms that I don't particularly like. You have to be reflective of the pluralistic society. And reflective tends to be a fruit bowl exercise. Let's get you know, one apple, one pear, one banana, and we can check the box. And again, that doesn't advance anything. But the very next stage of the Police Service Act talks about the actual requirements of police service delivery, crime prevention, order management, law enforcement assisting victims, assisting in prosecutions. And that's the effectiveness piece. And for me, that's where diversity 2.0 has to now reach. So are we sensitive to, yes, we have a community policing philosophy. We understand the need to communicate with and engage communities, and particularly diverse communities. Are we reflective of, yes, for the last five years, over 50% of all of our classes, 1,600 plus police officers in the city of Toronto were hired where women and visible minorities, Aboriginals, LGBT community members, and even persons with disabilities have made up 50% of those classes. 60% of them have more than one language. 70% of them have post-secondary education. So this is both a culturally competent and visibly diverse group of police officers that now make up 75% of our frontline officers. But it still doesn't get to the effective piece. So how does that improve crime prevention? How does that improve order management? How does that reduce crime and victimization? And is it in fact building up trust and legitimacy? That is a tough nut to crack. And I think that's the next stage for us to be able to demonstrate. I can give you some examples. A Tamil demonstration. How does that actually work? 2009, so see, you remember yeah. the Tamil demonstration that was going through the city of Toronto? We had basically thousands of officers for, for six months straight involved in various levels of demonstrations. We have, as you will likely understand, a huge intelligence gathering system that goes locally, provincially, nationally, and internationally in this case. And all of our intelligence assets all around the globe were trying to feed information in to help us to try to understand how to manage this particular demonstration. None of it was working. It was a Tamil-speaking officer who had parents back in Sri Lanka who could get onto Skype in the command center and say, hey, mom, what's going on in the newspapers today? What's going on in television? What's the mood on the streets? Can you get a local Twitter feed going for us? And that was the real-time, really valuable information that allowed us to adjust our operations to create a mostly peaceful, lawful protest situation where I think we struck the right balance as a clear example of going from sensitive to reflective to effective. Zabine, where has, in the bank's operations, picking up on what Peter said, and that's a perfect example of it moving beyond just aspirational into something that's embedded in the culture but also um, successful, where in the bank has that happened, where you have seen that sort of transformation work um, and move from simply the mix to using the mix in a, in a constructive and informative and successful way? There are probably a number of, uh, of situations that come to mind. Uh, I'll talk a little bit, uh, picking up on a bit of the story theme about our GTA retail banking uh, operation. I think some of you know Jennifer Torrey, who's the regional president there. And Jennifer sat back a few years ago and said, what do I need to be successful in my market? My market is changing. The complexion of my market is changing. And one of the conclusions that she drew was that her workforce needed to reflect the, um, the clients. And that, but that's not enough. Our workforce was diverse already. So her focus went to the, ma the management roles, our branch managers, our regional vice presidents um, needed to also, people needed to move through the organizations into positions of leadership so that we could then leverage that diversity to attract more talent, to attract the clients. Um, and you know, that takes a lot of work. That takes leadership conviction. That takes somebody that really 
embeds diversity into our talent practices. It takes um, non-traditional hiring practices. We uh, hired somebody into a regional vice president role who had not worked in banking before. Jennifer saw him speaking at an event. He was a leader in, an, in a not-for-profit organization, had some financial services somewhere in his, in his uh, background, but saw the potential, back to your point around um, the, the potential, the talent and the interest. He, a lot of people talked to him to really sense whether he was really interested in, in our business. And by bringing somebody like that in, we created a special program for a non-banker to be able to learn so it wasn't sink or swim. And those are the types of things when you believe that you really need to, to have people reflective at all levels, you need to do some things differently. And, and I'm really pleased to say that when, I, when we look at that particular market and that business, over 30% of our regional vice presidents are visible minorities and over 45% are women. So the, you know, the, in, at the end of the day, you do need to look at the numbers and the results, but it's really, it comes from leadership believing that this needs to happen and being willing to do things a little bit differently and not get too worried about, you know, what are, how is this gonna be viewed? Are other people gonna think that this is something special? We want the best people and you need to evolve your talent practices in order to be able to, to get to that place. Cameron, do you have the sense that that's embedded in a city like Toronto right now? That idea of, of being willing to do something different and not just be checking boxes and saying, right, we've got that covered on to the next thing. I don't think it is at all. Um, my experience is that if, this, we all know the city's changing, we, we all know the country is changing, but I think if we just sit and let it change, let it, diversity wash over us, it will change very slowly and it'll change unevenly because really it is about making these concrete decisions that are beyond just reflecting what is already out there in society. You actually have to, there are some moments of abrasion that will have to happen. Um, people who have positions of authority and positions of power, including all of us up here, will at some point have to give them up. You know, and that I think is is where things get tough, and that's that's where you have those difficult conversations where you say you do want to move someone into a management role, and so that means you know you have to fill a vacancy, and someone who might have expected to get that job may not get it. These are the tough conversations we have to have. I think in in every sector. So how do you get to that point where you're willing to make those tough choices? Because again, it's easy to not make the tough choice and say, well, it'll happen eventually. That that yeah. will bubble up. Don't worry about it. I think it doesn't happen eventually. I think if you look at certain sectors, you'll see that the change that diversity brought to the city has been uh, applied unevenly in the city. You look at uh, the city council, for instance, in Toronto, does not reflect the city. Um, certain uh, business sectors actually completely reflect the city. Um, and so it's a matter, I think, of trying to make change where you can, not just let it wash over you. How have you been able to do that, Peter? You've been able to make change. Um, is it because of where the support comes from, from officers, deputy chiefs like yourself, from the chief, uh, from an expectation from the city? Where does that come from, that, that sense of empowerment? We may, be, we may be a little bit different from, from the other agencies represented here, but I pick up on Cameron's point, and he's bang on. Um, you can legislate this thing, and you'll get some incremental and very grudging advancement. You can not legislate it, and you'll get a very uneven advancement. But really, um, you can criticize it from the outside, and you may get no advancement. I really do believe that you want to change an institution, an agency, a bank, a cultural icon, then you need to have people with the smarts and the parts to get into that organization 
and continually push on that particular issue. And I guarantee you, because I know every one of them, of the people up here today are probably still bleeding from scars from their efforts within their own organizations. I've still got a couple Band-Aids on my back and my front. Um, but it's, you know, it's the Keith Fords of the city of Toronto who understanding what the lived experience for young people, his own children, his own experience in the city, becoming a police officer against his own families and his own community's desires and, and becoming a leader within policing, understanding to advance public safety required advancing the issue of diversity. And that required courage and it required the, the recognition that you were going to suffer personally, you were going to suffer professionally, but if you did it well, and you did it for the right way, you would advance, and he did to the various highest levels of this organization. And I'm sure in this room here today, there are people that know of what I'm speaking um, and know what it means to sit at a table where you are the only person that looks like you, and more importantly, you're the only person thinking like you, and if you have the bravery to open your mouth, you're now the only person talking like you and how difficult that is. And I've experienced that. I've been laughed at, ridiculed, undermined, but that should not get in the way of advancing something that has to get done and has to be done well. One of the reasons why it has to be done is, as you said, Fiona, we're not doing it. Other people perhaps are, and we have, as, as Jimmy had said, the opportunity perhaps to slip, and this is essential to be the leaders that we want to be and remain the leaders that we are now. Why do you say that this is not happening? Well, I think the statistics show it. So, um, and I, I look at, you know, you just look at the roles of women in uh, corporate Canada and in, in our governing bodies as well. Um, to me, that's the canary in the mine. If you can't get it right for 50% of your population, heaven help you for the rest. So I think that um, it, it ultimately comes down to us as individuals. And, and I think that, you know, at Ernst & Young, we've, we've been on the diversity to inclusion journey for since the early 90s, and, um, and we've made lots of progress. Um, and I would say, and I probably shouldn't say it, but we've moved, we now, we've moved from unconscious incompetence, we didn't know what we didn't know, to now conscious incompetence. We know what we, that we don't know a lot of stuff. And competence is an individual thing. And I think that when you look at individual competencies, it starts with beliefs, it translates into actions, and from actions it translates into culture. And that's what you have to address. If you don't address the beliefs, um, then you don't address the culture ultimately. The beliefs? I don't believe so. And I think that bias is alive and well. Um, all of us are biased. And uh, there are tons of studies that show how powerful bias is. And I, and I would encourage anybody, if you want to test your own bias, to go to the, just Google implicit bias in Harvard, and you'll get the um, implicit bias test. And, uh, and I'll kind of confess, I have a mild bias against women working. And I have a, a, a mild bias in favor of African Americans versus Caucasian Americans. So you, you, I was gobsmacked, quite honestly. I thought it would be the other way around growing up in apartheid. Um, but you, if you start to understand your own biases, and as an organization, you can out your biases, then you can make sure that they're not filtering you from uh, making the right decisions, um, from uh, picking talent that looks like you and sounds like you. Um, and, so, and I think that's really an important, until you address that, I don't think anything will change. And I think the progression of women um, over the last 30 years has shown us that at best the change will be glacial. Have you felt, Sabine, as somebody who is um, very successful in the work that you do uh, at the bank that you are, ever felt that, if not bias, then the glacial pace of change? 
I think Fiona's, uh, I mean, I'd echo some of what Fiona said. Bias is really, I mean, it's, it's a natural phenomenon yeah. um, in, in any society and at any point in time. Um, I think the, the and, and, and we all feel bias and, and, exp, and experience bias, barriers. Uh, you know, I think people who say they don't, uh, sometimes you, you get that with, with women who say they haven't. I find that hard to believe, uh, but uh, because it is. What you need to do is figure out, so what do you do? What am I going to do about it? And uh, one of the things that we have found that's been helpful for us in, in the bank um, is a, it's a program that we call Diversity Dialogues. And um, it's, it's quite often people say, well, it's just another mentoring program. And certainly there are elements of mentoring. But what we do is we match up a, a, a young, a, a more junior emerging talent with somebody senior. And the junior person has, reflects uh, dimensions of diversity, whether it's cultural, um, whether it's racial, whether it's sexual orientation. And the idea is by bringing two real people together, real people in our own company, and, have, and enabling them to have conversations where the person shares their experiences, what they've experienced in our company, where they felt excluded, where they've experienced bias, seems to really get to the heart of the issue, but to the heart of the individual as well. And it, it has been a catalyst for leaders to change their behavior, to understand how subtle things that they do unconsciously most often have an impact and really become barriers to people achieving their full potential. And what happens at some point, people say, it's not worth it. You know, I've, I keep, I'm trying and I keep being, seeing some of those same barriers. And when, you, when they share those stories, and I know that I personally share stories as well, mm. you can just see the, the light come on for people and saying, you know what, I'm not powerless. I can make a difference. The leader really starting to change culture because mm -hmm. it, it isn't just about programs. Of course, programs are necessary, but in large organizations, it's re relatively easy for us to put programs in place. So you need to go at the culture piece simultaneously and particularly to get to that diversity 2.0. This picks up on a question that we got, which is just talking about perceived and real barriers and how you go about changing them. We were talking earlier this morning on our program, Peter, about uh, racial profiling and looking into and acknowledging and, and trying to figure out how to come to terms with racial profiling in something like a Toronto Police Service. How important is it to have that difficult conversation? We're a very polite nation. We're a very polite city and we don't like to talk about these sorts of things but you have to, and how important is it to try and do that? Well, I think it's incredibly important. First of all, it was being talked about for, for decades. Um, it just didn't hit mainstream media. One of the local uh, outlets decided to do a story back in 2003, and so it hit the mainstream consciousness, and then we were forced to have that difficult dialogue. Um, in the initial uh, instance, it was denial from the Toronto Police Service, and there was a whole lot of other outpouring of anecdotal evidence uh, from large sectors of, of our local community. I think we've grown up as an institution in the 10 years since then, and while it still is a major issue, and we still acknowledge that racial profiling, bias-based policing, however you want to define it, it's a human condition because we hire from the human race, we've got that within the police service, within the Toronto Police Service. How do you move from where we are right now? I, I kind of like the direction that Fiona was talking about. Uh, Ritu, if the uh, lady in the red there, put your hand up. She and I were talking uh, uh, on the break. We're looking at new approaches to identifying 
um, ways to move individuals and groups and teams forward. And I think we need to go past beyond, you know what, the police have to admit that there's racial profiling. We've done that over and over again. Individual officers have to realize that you could be biased. Yeah, we're human beings. So then how do we help us to advance ourselves down that competency road that we're talking about? And there are a number of diagnostics, everything from the Harvard uh, Review, and then there's an IDI, intercultural diagnostic something. Thank you. And uh, I'm actually, right after this meeting, going to meet with Hamlin Grange, who's certified in this, in this particular tool. I think Ritu is certified in it as well, to explore the philosophy and the practical applications of this within the team-based environment of a place like the Toronto Police Service to get to that point. Policing can't get done unless you have the public trust. Unless you're viewed as a legitimate institution, carrying out legitimate actions, you can only get so far. And for us to make the next step in public safety, we're going to have to be able to demonstrate the ability to maintain and increase public trust and legitimacy. And in the city of Toronto, with the diversity that it has, the issue of racial profiling or bias-based policing is critical to that effectiveness piece. Part of this is also about, and this is a question from the audience, about uh, promotion of diverse individuals. That You can hire people. You can program Bollywood film into uh, Roy Thompson Hall. Um, but you need to see uh, that diversity right through the food chain, if I can put it that way. Um, how do you go about doing that, Cameron? Um, you know, in our case, we, we have a slightly unusual circumstance at TIFF in that our leadership team, which is nine people, is probably the most diverse team in the organization, um, both uh, in terms of uh, ethnicity and, and sexuality, or orientation, that kind of thing. But uh, you go down a level to the management layer, and it's not nearly as diverse. So for us, it's about having that, those values reflected all the way through the organization. And for me, the unspoken uh, and possibly most difficult thing for us, because we are a cultural institution to grapple with, is class. Um, and in a city like Toronto, which maybe may feel like it doesn't have those class barriers, we have to address that. There are a lot of people who don't feel comfortable opening the door of Tiff Bell Lightbox because they don't feel like they belong. It's not their space. So that's the thing that we have to address and when we're hiring and when we're promoting, there are these intangible qualities that you're, when you're sitting across a table interviewing someone and you can tell what those class markers are and we have to be very conscious that we are not hiring for our own class or our own position in society, but that's also something that we're, we're addressing and trying to counter our own biases. That's a great point. Um, we got a question from Tyler who says, uh, diversity 3.0 is occurring in Toronto classrooms where it's quite common to see 15 or 16 different cultural backgrounds in a single class. What message do you have for young people about the type of inclusion they can expect from industry as they move from academics into that world. Fiona, I mean, again, this is diversity 2.0, and we, some people are coming to terms and struggling with that, but you're already seeing something beyond that in other elements of society. So wh what do you think the young people uh, who are in those classrooms now would see when they graduate, and, and, and how will that diversity work for them? Well, I would love to predict the future. <laughs> um, you know, I think that Part, partly I have a fear that if we, don't, if we don't change, that we will just, I think it's Einstein who said, if you continue doing the same thing and expect different results, you're crazy. And, uh, and so I think that's why it is so important that we change uh, the way we interact and we get to the personal competencies. And I, I think that the, the days of programs and things that you do to help people fit in, fit into what? Yeah. Um, you have to really change what you have to change the whole context, and and so we've moved from the fitting in, 
um, but we haven't done it very successfully. Um, so what I would hope is that, um, that people can learn from the mistakes of my generation um, because we need it desperately as a country, you know, not just, just because of the potential, but because of the demographic challenges that we, we're facing. If we don't integrate immigrants, if we, if we don't really leverage the, the richness of the talent that we already have, we will continue to fall behind. Cameron first and then Peter. I would just add that I actually think we have a lot to learn from high schools. I think high schools are probably far more diverse and students that are in high school today are dealing with a, a lot of these issues in a very front line way in a way that maybe we don't in our work lives on a daily basis because where you sit in the cafeteria, who's going to be voted uh, student council yeah. president, those things are issues that you deal with from the perspective of diversity and it's much more complex now than I think when any of us were in high school. But if you look, if you look, at, um, if you look at the position of women as the canary, I mean 30 years ago we were graduating, 30% of our university students were women. If you look at corporate CEOs in Canada right now, it's something like under 2% of public company CEOs are women. So just because you have a huge intake does not mean that that's going to translate just a matter of time. I think that we're just continuing to do the same things. We'll get the same results. And the attrition of women and minorities and, uh, and all the richness of the diversity will just you know, filter out through the, through the, uh, the bottom of the net. Peter? So. Two quick things. I think looking around the corner for me, I see two major issues. Globalization. I think if we leverage the issue of diasporas, which was referenced earlier on, where we stop trying to bring the right talent into Canada and leverage that talent and recognize that people move around the world and, and their, their connections to the home country, even second and third generation, can be leveraged. I think rethinking the whole immigration uh, paradigm is one way to do it. The other thing is, um, how many of you right now in your hands have a PDA? Gotcha. So You're all tweeting, aren't you? Exactly. So, I mean, this generation of high school kids are the digital age. And I think it's really interesting. I am, uh, you know, we tweet all the time, Matt, right? So, but we're just learning how to share information about ourselves. There's a whole generation of people that are putting their full selves out there now. And so they're less going to be captured by their physical presence. They will have a huge legacy already, self-authored legacy of who they are and what they think and what they care about, that if they nurture that properly, that can be, to me, diversity 3.0. And then employers can look at the total package as opposed to simply looking across the table and trying to pick up nuances. You can do a deep, deep dive. In some cases, you're not going to like what you see. In other cases, you're going to go, wow, what a rich human being. What rich human capitalists here. Let's really mine this. What is it, and this is a great question and, and, and picks up on something that I was thinking of, uh, because you have a room full of people who are keen on this subject, who are going to go, uh, whether it's digitally or beyond, and, and try and, and spread this, but also figure out how to kind of enact some change. So if you believe that we need to address beliefs and spur change, what is it that people could do here today or tomorrow to actually try and, and make that change? Peter? Uh, go right back into your work group, and particularly if you have some influential people, if they outrank you or outsupervise you or outpay scale you, have those very difficult conversations. I think Cameron raised the, the term earlier on. Uh, Hamlin Grange likes to say, you know, ask tough questions and have tough conversations. Have hard-working discussions. If anyone in that conversation leaves feeling really comfortable about what transpired, you've not hit the mark. Um, and do that on the subway, and do that at the cocktail table, and do that around the dinner table. Um, and continually challenge that. I just don't think we are a very polite society. We're a very polite city. That's what makes us one of the safest cities anywhere in the world. We're extremely polite to each other. 
but sometimes that can get in the way. Our great strength can then become a great weakness in terms of this particular topic. Fiona? Reach out to someone who's different than yourself. Um, it, change is going to happen person to person um, and understand yourself, understand your own biases and make sure that they don't inform your decisions. Uh, what I'd add to that is just around culture and mindset. One of the things that I think we need to get beyond is this concept of tolerance. Yeah. I don't want to be tolerated. I want to be valued. I want to be respected. Um, and you know, tolerance is probably diversity 100. Uh, and, and all of us here, I think, uh, in terms of culture change, we have a lot of power collectively. Um, when we hear concepts like that or, or other things for us to really speak about it and, and help people understand, um, you know, they often think that that's actually a positive word. I'm a very tolerant person. I tolerate these, you know, this group or these people. Um, uh, and uh, speaking very personally, that's not a place that, that I want to be at. Do you have a sense that the city is more than tolerant? I mean, people use that word a lot, and, and, and I find it a pretty abrasive word as well. But are, are we uh, more than a tolerant city? Yeah, I mean, you have people along the, the continuum, I think, on, on anything. Yeah. And, and, and certainly, we'd be a city that would not be parked on tolerant as much as many other cities. Uh, but I, guess I, it's, I think it's time to move, move beyond that. And it kind of picks up on what everybody's been talking about, that idea of complacency, that you need to get beyond mm. sort of where you are now and move into something else. Cameron? I would say get out of your ghetto. I think all of us live in some kind of ghetto or the other. Um, most of us work together, and there's a lot of mix in our workplaces, but then we go home and we live separately. Um, and we've seen the neighborhoods in Toronto become very strong and very focused around, around ethnic lines often, whether that's Brampton or Forest Hill or Rosedale. These are ethnic enclaves, and there's a lot of them in this, in this city. And I think it's hard for us to actually live socially with each other beyond that, because this is where our comfort zone is. And I'd say you have to get out of that. It's not just about the workplace. It's about where and how you live as well. So that can be one of the most difficult things to do, because everyone's so busy. You know your little routine. We were talking about this app this morning that uh, directs you in different ways when you're walking home just to kind of get you lost in your own yeah. city, which yeah. is a brilliant idea because you can get stuck in that ghetto, in that routine, in that own little neighborhood as beautiful as it is, and never see something else. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you break out of that? Uh, if you're single, date <laughs> outside. <laughs> Start there. If you're married, I wouldn't advise that. <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> but you know, that's how people get to know each other, if it's, if it's possible. Line up. Uh, for food. Try, yes. try different yeah. restaurants. If yeah. you see a lineup outside of a strip mall, chances are the food is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, if you have no idea what it is you're eating, what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah, exactly. You might have to put it down. There's, uh, so, many, there's, there's so many community um, places that you can, you can go and um, volunteer, you can help, we can do, do things outside of, as you say, your ghetto, um, and you can meet fascinating people and make a difference at the same time. It's an important subject. You're not going to uh, change a city or change the attitudes of an entire city uh, over the course of 25 or 30 minutes, but I think it's really important in part to address some of the difficult issues that people um, perhaps are reluctant to address in polite company. Thank you, everybody.
I listened carefully uh, this afternoon, uh, hoping the conversation would go beyond an expression of support for the ideals of diversity and inclusion. Uh, our guests exceeded my expectations. The pragmatism of the discussion was, was truly rewarding. I, I trust you would agree with me on that. There are few, if any, who know Toronto the way Matt Galloway does. This is due, of course, to his tireless daily efforts to explore and expose the incredible diversity of this city. We thank you, Matt, for being such a strong ambassador and for skillfully hosting today's event. Zabine, Cameron, Peter, and Fiona, thank you for the risks you have taken and the changes you have championed in the name of healthier, more prosperous workplaces and community. We are fortunate for and most appreciative of your leadership and for the inspiration and insight you've provided us today. To the five of you, please accept our heartfelt gra uh, gratitude and best wishes. Thank you. Well, thank you, Nick. Thanks, Matt. Panel, that was uh, a tremendous uh, lunch today. This concludes our television broadcasting. It will be rebroadcast on Rogers Television in the days to come. The Canadian Club continues to be grateful to both Rogers and to 680 News for their tremendous marketing support of all of our activities. Lunch is now adjourned. Thanks so much for being with us.